Would you please join me as we pray? O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name. We believe that in all the earth, your glory has been revealed. And Father, one day, uh, all heaven and earth and everything under the earth will uh, see your glory and proclaim that Jesus is Lord. And so would you help us to appreciate how glorious you are because we look into your word today. And I ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Have you ever thought that the world should be run differently than it is? Do you really think that somehow the world is out of control? I mean, think about it. <laughs> Would you have scheduled this pandemic? Would you have locked yourself down just when gas prices got so low you could finally afford to drive? If you're like me, you'd run it differently. I'd run it, if it was me, I'd run it with less sadness. I'd run it without any pain or problems. That's how I'd run it. And you see, when you're in pain, that's the time when you really think that, yes, in fact, it should be run differently. And in fact, not just differently, better. And so if I was running the world, yes, um, it'd be in much better shape, I'm sure. <sighs> that sounds like a pretty stupid thing to say, doesn't it? But that really is a struggle because I really do feel like it's not how it's supposed to be. The world is somehow disordered and out of control. And for 38 chapters in the book of Job, uh, he has argued this very thing with his friends. He argued that he was right and that God should be running the world differently. That God was somehow mistaken in the way that he ran the world. The friends thought that the world ran uh, by a formula and it was simplistic and it didn't make sense to them either. And so we come to the speeches of God here at the end of the book of Job. And I have to ask you, what would it take for you to realize you could not, in fact, run the universe? What would God have to do to convince you that he does have it under control, even when it looks like it's not under control? That's what God does in these speeches. And in his first speech, he uh, told us that he has the physical universe under control. And here in this second speech, in Job 40 and 41, God uh, tells us that he alone controls the moral universe. While the physical universe seems out of control, he's got that. When the world is uptight about climate change and then a virus somehow changed the face of the globe, God's got the physical universe under control. But the bigger problem, I think, for us is does God have the moral universe under control? 
I mean, think about how many people believe that the things we're experiencing with this virus uh, represent a moral issue, that it's some great conspiracy where evil people are intending to do evil things by the way that they're responding or having us respond to the virus. That's a moral problem. Certainly, the, the news lately of the murder of Ahmad Arbery is one more data point of evidence that the moral universe seems out of control. And so God's first speech suggests that he alone is control, in control of the physical world. He created it. He sustains it. He challenged Job to explain it. And Job responds by silencing himself as he realizes that he and God are in completely different leagues when it comes to running the world. Now that's already been established and Job's already conceded that. So why does God keep going? Why does God make a second speech? What is God trying to communicate with us in this second speech? I believe that he wants to communicate that he alone can control the moral universe. That God alone has the justice and the truth and the moral uh, compass and the holiness to run the moral universe. So why are you better off letting God be in control of the world? Even if you think you could do it better? Because you don't have what it takes for the job, and he does. That's why. So God gives Job two reasons why, God should let, why Job should let go of the reins and let God run the world. The first is a direct challenge in verses 6 through 14 of chapter 40. In this direct challenge, God simply says, Job, you lack the judgment and control to be in charge of the world. You are not up to it. You don't have the abilities or the moral character. So God introduces a challenge in verses 6 and 7. And he uses the same words that he used in chapter 38, verses 1 and 2, when he said, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you'll make it known to me. Dress for action like a man. That should be a signal that this is not going to be a pleasant conversation, Job. Brace yourself. Or I suppose you could say, God was telling Job, let's take this outside. Because Job has called into question God's justice, and God is ready now to defend himself. Can Job really call God unjust? Look at verse 8. It says, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me so that you may be right? The heart of Job's defense was his own innocence. He was innocent, yet he felt God was condemning him anyway. 
He essentially condemned God in order to justify himself. Yes, Job was righteous. But in order to establish his defense, he had to make God out to be unjust. That's what God calls into question there. And I have to say that God is not alone in this. So many people are quick to take the moral high ground against God. They're quick to count him unjust for suffering, unjust for his judgment or for sending someone else to hell. They deem him unfair when they see people suffer. And so we can shake our fists at the scriptures, which seem clear enough on the issues, or we can shake our fists at God himself for being so unfair. We can't see justice well enough, though, to tell God what he ought to do. I think there will be a lot of people who get to heaven one day. And those who have been indignant with God for doing things the way that he's done them, they'll put their hands over their mouths like Job does in these few verses. Do you really have the justice, he asks. But then he asks another question. He, he tells Job, have you an arm like God? Verse 9, can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger and look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. Tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them in all their dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I will acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. So God then brings Job's power into question. Can Job match God's power? He asks Job to show him his arm. It's just as though he, you know how, how adults um, tease children. Make a muscle for me, right? Show, me. show me your arm. Strike a pose. How strong are you? Then he says to Job, go ahead and speak. What power do your words have? Job, are you able to say, let there be light? And have it appear. Then he asks, Job, can you make yourself glorious? I mean, think about that. I mean, glory is one of those intangibles that you just simply can't produce yourself. You either have it or you don't. And God's inviting Job to do this for himself. I mean, what if I ask you, why don't you go ahead and array yourself with splendor? What would you do? Maybe you'd go home, what, put on something nicer? That's not splendor. What about majesty? Why don't you try your hand at majesty? Well, maybe you'd go hire someone for a couple days and boss them around and act like a big shot. But you know, that just doesn't work. You can't add to your splendor or glory or majesty. It doesn't work. 
Then he presses into Job's anger. He said, Job, is your wrath sufficient for running the world? Can you muster enough wrath to judge the wicked? Job, unleash the flurry of your temper against injustice. Think about that, though. Can you just see Job there shaking his fist? It looked a lot more like a temper tantrum than somebody who's actually running the world. It's almost humorous. Job, try to humble the proud. Why don't you try to judge the wicked? And then he says, Job, if you're able to right all the injustices in the world, then I'll listen to you. Now, really, this, this is the question about God running the world, isn't it? Because this is where most people want to be when they think about running the world. They look at it and they say, it needs to be done differently. The problem is, they can't do it. We can't do it. I can't do it if I want to. God is really telling Job, Job, you might have questions for me. But my questions for you reveal that you don't have the moral perspective or ability that would give you the right to be in charge of the world. Not only that, Job, you're too small for the job. So you lack the ability and the wherewithal to govern the world. And I would say the same thing is really true for us. I mean, just as he presses into Job, I don't want God pressing into me that way because that really does tell me that I'm not up for it either. But that is really nothing compared to what God does next. These questions merely set us up for what is this unexpected and unusual section of this book about the behemoth and the Leviathan. And so God tells Job, why don't you take a look at the big boys, Job? Look at the behemoth, look at the Leviathan, and you will realize you lack the power to be in charge of the moral world. What kinds of creatures are these, this behemoth and this Leviathan? They don't really perfectly fit anything that we know today or have discovered in the fossil record. I asked that question, and so I uncovered a number of possible suggestions with a simple internet search. Some of the suggestions about behemoth include that the behemoth is the land of the earth as opposed to the sea. The behemoth is the self-propelling steam engines of the 1890s. The behemoth is a rhino or a hippo or an elephant. Someone even suggested it's a North American continent as viewed from space. And likewise, the Leviathan has a number of guesses. Perhaps it's a dinosaur that traveled on the ark. Perhaps it's Satan himself. Perhaps it's a crocodile or a whale or a chronosaur or a dragon. Or maybe it's a submarine complete with radios or it's the sea itself, or merely symbols for evil. And my personal favorite, again, the continent of Eurasia, as viewed from space. Why do people have such a hard time figuring out what these things are? 
What are they doing here and why does God bring them up now? The question is really not what are these animals, but really why are they here? See, my understanding of this has changed, I have to admit. And I believe that God's second speech here is all about the moral universe. While the first speech was really about the physical universe. I think what God intends the reader to think is beyond merely what animal is this? Can I guess it from the clues you give me? I think rather when the behemoth and the Leviathan are mentioned, I think he wants us to feel the fear of the ancient mariner at the prospect of the sea monster swirling under a ship. Or to be awed as the hunter looks out at, dis- out at the distance at the behemoth who is inconquerable and immovable. As I mentioned, these animals don't really correspond to animals that we know about now. They come close, but then we have to add some things and compromise in our descriptions. And so my best understanding of this is that these animals represent spiritual power and darkness. They represent Satan and evil. And they strike fear in all who would consider them. Just like the prospect of Satan attacking Job in chapters 1 and 2 strike fear and alarm, so the behemoth and the Leviathan strike fear and alarm. It is the reaction to these beasts, not their physical description, that the writer wants us to really um, feel and understand. So think about this here for a minute. The behemoth, he mentions, um, is the first of his works, verse 19. So let him bring near, let him who made him bring near his sword. God says, I am the only one really who can bring him down. He is the first or the most large, the largest and most prominent of all of God's creation. Yet he is no threat to God. And God's question is, what can you do to him? The behemoth is the image of unstoppable strength. He is an enormous, inconquerable beast. The Leviathan, on the other hand, is noteworthy not merely for his appearance, but also for the fear that he invokes. You're not necessarily to analyze the look of this beast, but to tremble in hope that he doesn't destroy you. One commentator said, in the ancient world, specific animals, and he's thinking of the behemoth and the Leviathan, in the ancient world, specific animals, which were also thought of in supernormal ways, associated with otherworldly forces, and involved 
in aspects of spiritual warfare. He said in support of this view is the fact that it explains both the natural and supernatural elements of the beast's description, also underscoring God's majestic power before whom alone these creatures must bow. In the same commentary, goes on to say, it would seem correct that it is wrong to forge a radical disjunction between the natural and supernatural worlds. Instead, the behemoth and Leviathan belong to both. These beasts in their size and ferocity and untamable nature are evidence of that dark power rooted in the universe itself, which shadows all life. I think what the writer of Job wants us to understand, what God in his speech wanted us to understand, is that these beasts point beyond themselves to a dark and terrifying spiritual reality. So let me explain more why I think that, and I, I, I hope that um, you'll see it as well. So the, the first thing that gives me pause is the fact that God has already talked about the animals. God has already given us another perspective on the animal kingdom. He's talked about the power of the horse and the untamable nature of the donkey and the stupidity of the ostrich. Why now would he simply repeat himself, bringing again in the animal kingdom for that purpose alone? I think he's already addressed the physical universe in the first speech. So what is different about this speech? The second reason I think he's pointing beyond this to a spiritual darkness is that the Leviathan is almost always supernormal when it's talked about in the scriptures. So this isn't the first time he comes up in Job. He's in chapter 3, verse 8, where Job says, Let those curse it who curse today, who are ready to rouse up the Leviathan." If you remember, this Job's just getting started. This is his very first speech where he curses the day that he's born. How does he want to get rid of the day that he was born? He wants the Leviathan to rise up and to uh, swallow it. That's not a normal creature that can do that. Then in Job chapter 26, verses 12 and 13, he, he again deals with the same kind of thing. He, he says, his power, by his power, he stilled the sea. By his understanding, he shattered Rahab. By his wind, the heavens were made fair, and his hand pierced the fleeing serpent. So when he says, he shattered Rahab, Rahab means the boisterous one. He shattered the boisterous one, and this fleeing serpent can be understood really as the Leviathan himself uh, fleeing and swirling uh, in the sea. These are the enemies 
of God. And God, by His power, has stilled the sea and has put to end His enemies. That's chapter 26, 12, and 13. And elsewhere in the Bible, when Leviathan is used, it's used of the enemies of God and the, uh, really a spiritual power. He's, the Leviathan, we find, is present in the Exodus, according to Psalm 74, verses 12 through 17. Yet God, my King, is of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your might. You broke the heads of the sea monsters on the water. You crushed the heads of Leviathan. You gave him as food for your creatures of the wilderness. You split open springs and brooks. You dried up ever-flowing streams. Yours is the day, yours also is the night. You've established the heavenly lights and the sun. You have fixed all the boundaries of the earth. You have made summer and winter. This multi-headed Leviathan was broken when God conquered uh, the sea, conquered the Red Sea and split it so people could walk through. Or again, in Isaiah 27, verse 1, there's going to come a day of judgment. And that day of judgment is going to, in fact, inflict the Leviathan. In the day, the Lord is hard and great and strong sword will Punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent. Leviathan, the twisting serpent. And he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. In the end, the great day of judgment, the Lord, in the great day of judgment, the Lord will destroy the Leviathan. See, I don't think he's pointing to the physical sea creature. He's pointing beyond it to God's enemies, to the one who breeds rebellion against God's sovereign cosmic rule. And so the Leviathan is a very image of chaos and turmoil. And as he is there described in this, in this chapter, you know, he, God asked Job, can you make him a pet for your girls? Uh, if you go to battle with him, you'll regret it forever. And can you handle that? God says, it's not a problem for me. The other reason I think that this is a spiritual thing has to do with the structure of the book. I've tried to present the book of Job from a structural perspective where we had the first couple chapters dealing with the scene in heaven and Job's loss. Then we have this long section that has several cycles of conversations with Job's friends. And then we have an uh, Elihu come in and set us up for God's two speeches. And then there's a, the ending next week. But this structure, I want to just suggest that this structure would indicate, too, that if we're going to deal with the problem presented in chapters 1 and 2, we need some kind of spiritual resolution. I mean, if the book starts with Satan and doesn't deal with Satan anymore, 
can we really say that we've dealt with the problem of evil? Can we really say that we're satisfied with the way that it goes down? Can the problem of suffering be adequately resolved if we don't resolve the spiritual problem underneath it? And see, what I think is happening here in this speech about the behemoth and the Leviathan is that God is saying it without saying it. God being sovereign over evil is the most important thing about suffering. If all God did was control the physical universe, it would be a small comfort if the moral universe was still out of control. We all have a sense, don't we, that this is the problem. This is why we feel that suffering is unfair. This is why we think that pain and suffering and death and loss is inherently immoral. Because it's not how life should be. The inglorious breakdown in our human experience is inherently moral more than merely physical. And so if Job and his friends argue about the mechanical way that the world works, and God in his first speech answers that physical, mechanical world. Then we go to the beginning of the book where Satan and the spiritual reality is brought up, and now God answers that with his spiritual control over behemoth and Leviathan. And then... What's more, the, this Leviathan or this sea monster gives us a, a picture of the struggle that happens throughout the scripture. In Genesis chapter 1, we're introduced to a, a world that was formless and void where the spirit hovered over the waters. The, the sea is in chaos in the beginning. And then... We see all of this struggle, even with the Leviathan, like I've already read throughout the the scripture. And then we end up in Revelation with a crystal sea, where the sea is no more. And the, the turmoil and the danger of the sea and its sea monsters has been taken care of as it points to the end. Think about it. Let's go back over it again. The Bible begins with a serpent in the garden. And the Bible ends with dragons and beasts being slain by the lamb. And here in the book of Job, in the very center, we have God asserting his authority over the rebellious serpent, the fleeing, writhing Leviathan. So God says in Job chapter 41, verses 8 through 11, lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You won't do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. I just have to say, 
that is a spiritual problem, not merely physical problem. I, I had somebody the other day tag me on Facebook that uh, with, you know, you've probably seen the, the T-shirt or something that says um, that I'm a pastor because uh, a, a ninja devil's, uh, a devil stomping ninja isn't a real thing. And I just, that makes me so nervous because of what it says here. No one is so fierce that he dares serve my, I'm no, I'm no devil stomping ninja, but I know a God who has conquered him. And that really is what I do is I just, I just trust in him and I point people to him because the safety is not in the way that I might deal with this spiritual reality, but the fact that God can deal with it. And then look at what God asserts here. In verse 11, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. See, no one has the hope of overcoming this giant Leviathan. Yet God simply says, it doesn't matter how big he is because God is bigger. No one, not Leviathan, not Job, not his friends, nobody makes God do something that God doesn't want to do. God is not going to do someone else's bidding. God alone is equipped to deal with the evil serpent, the force or forces that oppose both him and human life. And so God tells Job, don't mess with Leviathan, but I've got him. Again, it reminds me of the very beginning of the book when God said to Satan, you can go this far and no farther. Because God is in control of Satan and evil and the moral universe, just like he is the physical universe. And so why... Why do I talk about it that way? Why, what do I want you to do as a result of this message? The first thing that I want you to do is I, I just want you to stand in awe of God. God is a master of the physical universe. He created it. He sustains it. He understands it. And likewise, he is the master of the moral or spiritual universe. I want you, as a result of this message, to deal with God as God. Not as some figment of your imagination that you shape according to the way you want him to be. Because if Job's, this book of Job taught us anything, God is not yours to control or manipulate, and you dare not underestimate him. God is more than capable, more than strong, more than sovereign over all evil, all the opponents, all the suffering in this world, just and unjust. And like Job, I want you to wrestle with him.
And as a result of your wrestling, I want you to surrender like Job did to God's sovereign hand. Embrace him by faith. Let him run the world. Here in the second speech, God asserts his right to be God. He reigns. He's in perfect control over his greatest rival. He is supreme over suffering of an individual and over the suffering of all creation. He is unchallenged over sin. He is not fixed by formulas or rebellion or evil. More than that, God's ultimate victory over the serpent is won when the seed of the woman crushes the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15. It is won by Jesus on the cross. All the venom, all the fire, all the rebellion is absorbed by Christ on the cross and he emerges victorious from his tomb. Listen to the way the Bible writers talk about this. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 He says, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them in him. Then in Hebrews 2.14-15, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death he might destroy him who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. What Job, this last speech of God here in the book of Job, is pointing toward, it's pointing toward Christ, who finally and forever conquers Satan. He destroys sin and the devil and death, and he rises victorious, and he stands at God's right hand, and he is our victor, our champion. And he alone governs then the moral universe so that there is not anything physical out of his control, nor is there anything spiritual out of his control. Elections and viruses and justice and nations are all under his control as are the spiritual powers that drive evil and injustice. The spiritual powers that promote suffering, that hurt people, that kill people, that defame the name of God, they have been conquered. I believe that's the message of God's second speech here in the book of Job. And more than that, I believe that it is the message of the cross of Jesus. That you no longer have to fear the darkness. That the grip 
that fear or evil or suffering or depression has had on you, that grip is broken by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so it is his victory that we celebrate here in the book of Job. And it is his victory that gives us the final resolution to the problem of suffering. That the evil of it has been taken care of by Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are humbled at the question. We're thankful the questions went to Job and not to us. And Father, we do believe that you are greater than any rival. There is no God like our God. That your name is majestic. That you have conquered sin and death and the devil by the cross and resurrection of your Son. And so, Father, we rejoice in that. We, we are confident that you hold us and there is nothing that can take us out of your hands. And you have proven this over and over. And we thank you that you have revealed to us again that there is no power that can challenge you. So we safely and confidently commit ourselves to you again. In the name of Jesus, amen.